0: You're listening to the Skylight Books
1: Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening.
2: Hello and welcome to the Skylight Books Podcast. You're listening to our special series, Lit Angeles. This is episode three, where we will be discussing The Revolt of the Cockroach People by Oscar Zeta Acosta. My name is Emily Van Knut. I'm Elena Saunders. Oh my god, hi Elena. Hi. Okay. Now I feel like I'm talking abnormally loudly because we just were having a conversation about how I mumble. I think it'll be good for you. I think it'll be good. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, we got to get our, our booming podcast <laughs> going. Um, yeah. yeah, so today we're discussing this book, The Vault of the Cockroach People. What was your knowledge of this book? Okay. Uh, before we decided to read it. Yeah. Very little. Um, so somebody who works with us at the bookstore when i first moved to la about a year ago actually was telling me about this book and they were saying like it's a cult classic in la it's um you know it's like a huge part of la lit culture uh and i was like okay cool and then promptly forgot about it and uh so that was basically the only like <laughs> that was it that's it yeah and that's really it you know like you hear about all these kind of like Hunter Thompson, and I mean, I hear about Michael Hare because I love Michael Hare, but like all of these kind of new journalists, you know, gonzo journalism stuff, but you don't actually hear that often about Oscar Zeta Acosta. Yeah. Unless you're here in LA. Unless you're here in LA. And yeah, like, yeah, so I heard about this book from our upcoming guests, Arturo Ernesto Roma and Sasha Foster, um, and they've like cited it as an important book to them because it is about being chicano like in la mm-hmm. and it's like a super political book but i think even hearing about it from them i didn't realize like who oscar costa was and he is like a goddamn legend and like yeah. not talked about so the first thing we want to do in this episode is kind of To get into not only, like, the ethos of this book, The Revolt of the Cockroach People, but also into the author himself. Yeah. Um, He only really wrote two books in his lifetime before he literally disappeared. Disappeared in 1974. In Mexico. In Mexico. On on a boat. They still don't know. Was it the government or was it the drug cartels? We... Don't know. We don't know. We don't know no, or did know. he just it's... vanish? But, like, we all know it was, like, one of the two. Yeah, it was, I I, I think maybe FBI. Yeah, FBI. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, think so. yeah. yeah. I mean. Well, it's, like, also right after this book came out. Right. And I This mean, came like... out in 1973. Yeah, and it was 74 that he went missing. Yeah. Yeah, so. Mysterious. Yeah. Uh, uh, next up, we're going to start a podcast on um, conspiracy theories. So yeah. This will be the first one we did. We really get into too. bridging the, yeah, yeah, we're just using this podcast to yeah. to our other podcast. But Elena, who was this guy? So this guy, this guy, this guy, um, lawyer, incredible writer. Um, so he was born in 1935 in El Paso. Um, his, then they... His family moved to California. His parents. To like Modesto. Yeah. 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 His parents picked peaches until um, so his dad got a job in the Navy. I don't know if that's how you say it. He got a job in the, he joined the he Navy. He joined the Navy. He joined yeah. the Navy. Um, yeah. Uh, and so uh, I was reading this article about him in the New Yorker and it was talking about at the, around that time his mom starts calling, uh, whose name is Juana. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, yeah, that sounds great. That sounds great. That yeah. Sounds um, she starts going by Jenny, and his sister in this article kind of talks about how, like, there was an erasure of heritage there. You mm-hmm. know, like how. Uh, it's, yeah, it's like an assimilation. An assimil- exactly assimilation. Exactly. Which we'll definitely word. touch on later, but like, it's yeah. like this assimilation of, like, Which he goes in into culture. Yeah. In the book. No, I think he goes into it in his first book. Yeah, um, a bit more, but he goes into it in, in this book um, quite a bit. Yeah, so he wrote two books. We yeah. the Revolt of the Cockroach People is the second one, but we decided to read it because it is the most set in LA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Acosta joins the Air Force, and there he becomes kind of like a Baptist preacher and, and missionary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he kind of has like this. Break up with God or with Jesus? Not break up with. You. When he ready. actually literally writes a letter of resignation to Jesus. That sounds so grand I love. Yeah, him. it totally is. Um. So I feel like I'm just listing. Thing. No, I love this. This is good. And then, well, so he comes back from the Air Force and to the U.S. and that's when he's like breaks up with God because he kind of starts getting yeah. back into partying, gets into doing acid, and then starts hanging out with, like, you know, in the first book, I think, not that I've read it yet, but he struggles a lot with, like, his Mexican-American identity, his yeah. Chicano identity, amongst a bunch of white people, and in this, like, really white culture. Yeah. Um. And then, and he, he becomes a lawyer. Yeah. He, like, finishes school, he becomes a lawyer, and then he... Works at oh what's it called the Inquirer. Examiner the Examiner I was what is it like when it's a law firm but it's like for people so he studies creative writing and then works at the Examiner and then after he passes the bar in 1966 he works at uh, for the East Oakland Legal Aid Legal Aid that's what I was trying to think of but yeah so he like goes through this journey where he like is like. On a pretty solid path, but then he starts to get radicalized. I think he was always pretty radical, but... Yeah. um, I think, like, reading about him, you hear from his... Everyone that he's just, like, a big presence. Yeah, and you can kind of tell through, like, the snippets of, uh, like, dialogue that we get from his life. Like, in that New York article, they quote from the, um, from his resignation letter to Jesus... And it's just, like, very, very funny and very out there. Yeah. Like, he seems well, and like that's very how, wild and like energetic. And that's how he falls into the crowd he falls into, which yeah. is that he basically becomes best friends with Hunter Thompson. Yeah. And that's how, like, everyone is going to know him the best, is that he is in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Like, he is a character that Hunter Thompson creates. Dr. Gonzo. He's Dr. Gonzo. Mm-hmm. Um... And so he, like, falls into, like, yeah, kind of that same, he, like, basically, not invents, but, like, Hunter Thompson stole a lot of stuff from him, and, like, yeah, um, he, so he, like, creates this, like, the gonzo journalism and, like, all this stuff in a lot of ways. But mainly, he, and he does a lot of acid. Yeah. Yeah. And fucks a lot of white girls. Yeah. Yeah. All that, all that. Leading <laughs> into this book, the Revolt of the Cockroach People is like why we wanted to start there instead of, um, uh, like with the book itself because it, who he is is so important to like what this book is. Yeah, because this book is essentially just like a fictionalized version of you know the three years he spent in the Chicano movement. Yeah, right? exactly. So, like, it's important to kind of understand the man. The man behind it and how he barrels into this world. Yeah. Because yeah. that's, like, how he does everything as he barrels into it. Yeah, he's very, like, unapologetically um, energetic. Yeah, and I know. was, like, reading this thing about his dad, too, that was, like, saying that his dad... um And him used to, like, argue a lot as kids, like, instead of encourage argument, and so it's, like, maybe that's how he became the man he was. Yeah, I would love to read that first book, um, because I think it goes much more into, like, how he, how he kind of got the mindset that now we are experiencing in this book, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and he like yeah. renames himself, right? Like he's like, yeah, he, his business card says Buffalo Brown. Yeah. There are all these things that are like really important, I think, to understand about his identity to then like step into this book. But so the basic idea of this book is it's not basic at all, it's very large scale. Yeah, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. But it is this man, Oscar Zeta Acosta. Yes. Buffalo Brown. Buffalo Brown. Zeta. Buff, Z, what else? I'm trying to think of all the names he goes by. I don't know. Buff stuff. Buff is good. Buff. Yeah. Sure. Um, and so he he gets to East LA. It opens in a, it goes through a lot of things, but yeah. um, he gets to East LA and he falls into being a lawyer for the Chicano movement. And throughout the book, he goes through like three or four different political large political moments Mm -hmm. in the Chicano movement that then he ends up defending. Um, So you see him both in action in the protests and then um, in action at the trial, which is like, he is an interesting lawyer to say the least. He's He's a (laughs) non-traditional lawyer, but he basically sticks with these guys uh through the movement until he like burns out. And that's like the essential plot of the book. There's yeah. a lot in the in between. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah but yeah. it is like a deeply political book about this really huge movement in LA that I frankly knew nothing about. Yeah. Same. That was really something that I was like a little embarrassed by. I was like, oh I really know nothing about this movement. Um and it, it. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the movement? Yeah, for sure. So, having read about it yeah. now, <laughs> and uh, and of course, like in this book, he's like a little chaotic, and he's also not like deeply entrenched in the history of it. For sure, yeah. So, like, you kind of only like experience the narrative that he presents. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about this book is like
0: you're it kind is of s-
2: fiction. It is fiction air quotes, but it's like so much I mean it's so much not fiction. Mm-hmm. But like that's what's kind of interesting is that you're kind of thrown yeah. into this world and so it's not like uh it's not like a typical nonfiction book um where you know you have an explanation really like a clear explanation of like yeah. what's going on and why and what people want and what they're asking for and blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um It makes me think of so many things about this book that, like, become really important. But just, like, first, just, like, as a point, I think that this is a huge book in the Chicano, like, literature renaissance. Yeah. And he becomes, like, a huge writer in that era. And it's because, like, it almost feels like this is so... um, I can't can't say it, but I'm going to say it. It's like, it feels like when you read... like a book by an author of color in high school and then you have to like go in and like look up all the words but like yeah. the chicano renaissance like allows people to like write in spanglish and like write in a way that totally would be confusing to us as like white readers yeah um and oh, i was meaning more like the historical context no but you it just like but like yeah, yeah yeah but like i just mean that in like a general sense that it's like actually finally bringing like this culture to literature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it yeah. can be like widely written. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah and yeah, yeah, yeah. that just ties into the history of this which is like wanting to like basically this the Chicano movement started to as we were talking about briefly like avoid assimilation. Yeah. Um because like the way that after the like the Mexican American War, like the way that like states were created, yeah. As often happens with like border politics is that some people end up on Mm -hmm. one side of the border or the other. Yeah. Or you end up in the U.S. for whatever reason, but then you're just supposed to, like, assimilate. Assimilate, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, the Chicano movement was so much about saying, like, no, I don't want to, like, ditch my Mexican identity. Yeah. I want to hold that. Um, And then, like, to move, to start creating things that, like, actually cater to the Mexican people that live in America. Yeah. Um, And not have it be about assimilation. So they're, like, the first... There's a whole bunch of stuff happening in Texas. There's a whole bunch of stuff happening in Colorado. All this stuff that I don't know that much about because I didn't research it as much. But the first big thing that we see is um, this... I'll just go, like, chronologically. So it's, like, the East LA walkouts, also known as the blowouts, um, created... It was, like, this... This walkout from the schools that happened because people were realizing that um, these communities, the Chicano communities, were getting a worse education. They had, like, terrible dropout rates. They were getting, like, catered. The educational programs were being, like, forcing them kind of into being laborers and, like, yeah. domestic workers. And, like, let so much less about pushing them to be more than what we often pitch. what. The U.S. has pitched Mexican-Americans into VA. Yeah. So they protested. A bunch of people walked out. Students, parents, faculty. Yeah. um, And 13 people got arrested. And then Acosta eventually represented them. Yeah. Case number one. Case number one. He got them all acquitted in the end. Yeah. And you see this all in the book and it's like, He's a madman. Like there's no other yeah. way to put it except that he's like it's really wild. Like it's 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 not like he's like a, a um just a normal man on the stand. Like no, it's not like a normal lawyer. It's not like a lawyer drama, you know. It's no. like really it's almost like the the scenes of him in the courtroom are actually completely like like they're interesting, but what's interesting is him in the courtroom. Like yeah. they're I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I'm trying to say something. No, I mean, it's like you're not watching, like, a procedural, you're watching like... Yeah, it's not about the courtroom, it's about him in the court, like, him in that environment. And he gives you, like, a great insight into, like, how he's gonna, like, kind of work the room, and, like, Mm -hmm. work the rules, and you can tell he's, like, not to reference the movie and musical Chicago, (laughs) um, but he's gonna razzle-dazzle them (laughs) like, he's gonna... I going to give him the old razzle-dazzle, but like, you know, brown buffalo style. Yeah. Well, it's also kind of interesting, like, well, I don't know how I really want to say this. No, never mind. That's a, that's a, cut that, cut that make. Anyway, cut that mic. Okay, go ahead, go on. Um, and one of the ways in, like, another way that I think he's really an interesting lawyer in this book is yeah. with um his next... The next big case, I believe, that he does, which is the Basil 21. Basil? I mean, I'm I saying Basil. It might be Basil, but it it's Basil. Basil. Well, you guys, it's a church, so you decide <laughs> um, which way we should be saying it. Um, but so it's it's Christmas Eve. Uh he's in a picture. Yeah, the picture. Um, Oscar Zeta Acosta has already tried to get his... Like, his little, like, employees, little interns. Yeah. Basically, they're, like, already... And this these are things where I'm, like, is this fa- true, fact or fiction? Who knows? Um, but his little interns are, like, hey, we need more money for school. The Catholic Church is supposed to be paying for our school. And so he goes down and tries to, like, get the Catholic Church to pay more. And this is where I'm, like, this is probably not true. Because he's, like, wasn't, like, a big schemer overall. Like, he... He had his role in it, but he wasn't like the spearhead of the Chicano movement. Yeah. Not at all. Um But so they go down and it's both like the Chicano movement, like I think a lot of the civil rights movement movements of a time has factions. They have like militarized, non-militarized yeah. people kind of in the the in the middle.
0: Um
2: but they go down to the church on Christmas Eve and want to just go to the surface, and of course they aren't allowed into the surface. But it's like a ton of people, yeah, and um they end up like, and all they're doing is trying to like demand that money is more evenly spent from like not just like they just mit- built this huge new church. Yeah, they had spent three million dollars, three million dollars on a new to church, constructing a new church as opposed to giving that to the communities that to they like serve. the poor, which like you know is what you're supposed what jesus would want you to do you know be christ be christ-like and like knowing that he was like a a big christian before is actually really interesting yeah that. yeah i think so too because i think that would kind of i feel like it would irritate him more mm-hmm. to see this kind of like those kinds of abuses happening yeah um when he, you know at one time had a very close relationship with you know i mean it was I I don't want to speak for his close relationship with God, but I yeah. figure if you're a preacher, you probably have to have something going on. Yeah, but really like good. that would irritate the shit out. Of it. Like, just yeah, or he got bored. He got bored. He was like really not for the military life, so <laughs> he picked up something else where he could like. Yeah, contemplate I, I don't know. Well, well, we don't. We don't. We're know. Spe- speculating. We were, yeah, we we're speculating. But but no, actually, in that article I read that after he kind of resigned from the church, he was like, hey, he had a really hard time with it. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I'm like, okay, whatever. So like, maybe he really exactly. did believe in God. Either got, way. I yeah. Either way, he's the kind of person that I think the hypocrisy of that would irritate really, him. Yeah. And I think that's like, I think, I forget where I read it, but he, his main thing was like, that he really hated people who were lying to him. Yeah. Um, And so like, you know, I think mean, he could view so many of these politicians and like leaders as liars and he wanted to like totally overthrow that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so this whole this whole Christmas Eve church debacle ends up with 21 people getting arrested. So they become the Basil Basil 21. Basil Basil 21. Yeah. Um and he ends up representing them in court again. And so like while he's in all these protests Everyone's like, no, 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 don't do anything. Like, yeah, you stand back because you're a lawyer. Yeah. So, like, he can be a great, like, human megaphone. Like, he's great at giving speeches at protests, but, like, a lot of time when it's, like, actual action and, like, when it comes to the police and the protesters butting heads, which yeah. it like, always does, he, like, has to take a step back. And I think he feels really conflicted about that because yeah, he feels constantly caught, like, between this, like, I almost, uh, like, between, like, being the, like, acid hippie that he is and, like, also the, like, revolutionary Chicano and he wants to be both of those things. Yeah. Well, also, like, kind of the professional lawyer who has, like, this job to do, but also he wants to, like, you know, he wants to be active in the fight that he's fighting yeah and so he like doesn't want to be the man yeah exactly yeah um so he 21 people get arrested mm-hmm. he ends up getting half of them acquitted and i think this is where he runs for sheriff yeah. so much happens there's in this so much. book much. there's so, much. and also like a lot of this book has like a very kind of interesting timeline yeah so it's not actually like in uh <laughs> like it's not orders. chronological at order. And yeah. it's not even like it's not like he neatly wraps up one trial and to yeah. another trial. It's like there's all these things in between. Not at all, but I think it's after he's having trouble uh, with the Robert case. Oh yeah. Yeah, the Robert case. And then he decides to run for sheriff. Right. So the Robert case the Robert case is like not as often talked about. No, because it's kind of a, like it's it's not, just a small thing. So yeah. his family had approached him. Um, to help find out if their son, who died in jail, was murdered or if he committed suicide because he, quote unquote, committed suicide, yeah. according to the sheriff or the, 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 the people who apartment. jailed him. Yeah. Um, and as we all know now, yeah, you know, it's really sketchy and like all like you know, there's a lot more criticism of this. I do love that every every turn of the books that we're doing, the cops are the definitive you know this is true I love this let's keep yeah it, let's like, continue let's keep <laughs> it going. going there's a through line um, here. Yeah. yeah the cops are bad in this um but yeah so he ends up eventually after there's like this really powerful scene in this book where they do the autopsy of the boy oh God yeah it's so brutal but that oh, was like really when I got invested in this book and I think really when it all started hitting so much harder yeah that, that was, was a hard that was like a difficult it's difficult because it they're difficult. like so he has to go in with the the doctors performing the autopsy yeah and like based on the pre pre before death and then post mortem pre mortem sure yeah the, but, but <laughs> like based on the bruises yeah. they have to like go in and like cut out the bruises and, like, exhume his body and then and then he has to, like. Op- Because a Zeta has to, like, decide which pieces of flesh they're going to cut. Yeah, it's... it's, Oh, it's so... Oh, it's it's really bad. bad. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was... That was one of, like, the more disturbing things I've read in a a novel in a while. Yeah. Um, It was... You know, and I read that book about cannibalism. Like, it was... That was... This was a hard one to to get through. Yeah. I'm just going to read the thing that he says at the end of the chapter after this. Um, Autopsy. Um, And when it was done, there is no more Robert. Oh, sure, they put the head back in place. They sell it up as best they can. But there is no part of the body that I have not ordered chopped. Forgive me, Robert, for the sake of the living brown, forgive me and forgive me and forgive me. I am no worse off than you. For the rest of my born days, I will suffer the knowledge of your death and your second death, and your ashes to my ashes, your dust to my dust. Goodbye essay, People of Rasa. Uh, it's really. It's like. Yeah. And then you like really, because like there's points where you just feel like he's like a court jester. Yeah. And then you see yeah. like this was like, I was like, oh, he's really like, this isn't like a. Like, he's not in this just to be in this for the moment. Like, he really feels this. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of like, and that's something that we were going to talk about too is kind of this like fictionalized nonfiction thing Um, because I think it changes the way that you approach or it changes the way that I approach reading a novel when I'm like okay this is a novel but it's actually like mainly based off of somebody's real life and it's in first person on all this stuff Um, but I think he does a really good job of kind of balancing out like those really those moments that like really emotionally can hit so hard and are so like quick and and written really well yeah. and then there are other times where you're kind of like who is this guy what is going on here yeah i mean it's like, like there's there... a point where there's like a lack of editing of course because it's no but i i don't oh, really yeah. mean like a lack of editing i just mean like or like editorial i don't know there's like you know like i think that it could be argued that there's like a fair amount of like ego going right. on of course. In, in this and like but then those moments of like real um emotional Honesty and like they that I, it just makes those all the more powerful because mm-hmm. you're seeing like oh this writer is like so aware of his own like tendencies in his own mind in terms of like kind of talking himself up and blah 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 and then suddenly he gets to like a very heartfelt real moment like that and yeah. uh, it just makes that kind of even more powerful to read. Yeah, absolutely. I think that like he's what makes him so compelling. It's just that he's like a kind of person that I could never be where it's like, it's like this level of like, it's not that he's so selfish because he's, I don't think that he is. I think he must be in real life. I think he must be like a selfish person. Yeah. But to be all of these things and to live so loudly and like, yeah, is something that like I can never imagine. So like writing a book like this about myself, could just like truly not happen because like, He's so unapologetic. Unapologetic. Like, yeah. I think there's a story again in that New Yorker. I read other things besides the New Yorker. Article, but that but New has some good really stuff. Up, yeah. <laughs> but there's, uh there's, I think a story about him like carving Zeta into a stall in the bathroom. Uh, yeah. In the Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah. Like, whatever. That's amazing. So I'm like, that's. I want to, at 31, I want to be doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, just, like, do yeah. it. I mean, I think if I went into the Rolling Stone bathroom, I would do that. That feels like, a safe space <laughs> for that. Um, I don't know, man. I don't like, know. But, like, in, so in the last and final trial that we have to talk about, um, was for this big movement where it was, like, ended up being, like, 20,000 people. Yeah. 30,000? I've seen, like, two different numbers. But, It was the, like, Chicano moratorium that was the, like, march against Vietnam. Yes. Because, um, shockingly, more brown people, especially, like, the largest population dying in Vietnam was, like, the Chicano population. Yeah. Um, They were getting drafted heavily because they weren't going to school. Yeah. And they were poor. So it's really easy to get caught up in the draft and then die in a stupid war. Yeah, that's, that's it's what's also wild because, I mean, maybe it's just because we don't have the draft anymore, but like, you don't think of it in terms of like, oh, these dropout rates at these high schools are 45%. I think it's like one of the worst ones. Yeah. And that could literally mean life or death. You know, if they're not graduating from high school, they're not going to college. If they're not going to college, they're going to get drafted. Like, yeah, that's a wild. That's yeah, that's great. Right. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And so, so you know, people noticed and people were like, "This is super unfair." Um, and so twenty to thirty thousand, because the numbers are unclear. Yeah, people showed out to march for this, and it was supposed to be they went to um Laguna Park. Yeah, and um they marched and. They were supposed to be peaceful and then shocker upon shocker, like the cops came and, and made it violent. And like there were riots, there was looting and it, the big thing, many things happened within that, but um, some folks headed to a bar and one of them was this reporter, um, Ruben Salazar, who in the book is known as Zanzibar um, and he was like the foremost reporter on like Chicano politics for the LA Times. Yeah, I think he was one of the first reporters to be covering that particular beat. Yeah, yeah, and he was like, they threw a tear gas container into a closed space. Yeah. Claimed it wasn't closed. They claimed it was like or no, it wasn't closed. It was open. It was it was open. There was like a curtain. There was a curtain. But it was also I think it was, it was fishy, fishy, fishy. Well, and it wasn't—it um, wasn't like a normal tear gas container that you yeah. use to disperse crowds, which you yeah. just throw. It's one that you shoot. Oh, you shoot, and so they yeah. shot it right into his head. They shot it into his head. Yeah, yeah. So he died, and yeah. so Acosta is left defending the people who started this protest, mm-hmm. um, and in turn, kind of himself, um, and like has to deal with the death of this guy that he really admired yeah and also kind of trying within that trial to prove that it was uh premeditated yeah. by the LAPD yeah so that yeah and that there's is. like obviously there's like all this minutia that we can't get into but the yeah. cool thing he does is he like calls all of the judges like all of the judges <laughs> in LA, he subpoenas all of them, and they have to come in. And like this, this case goes on for like years. Yeah, and like uh, a yeah, like at least over a year, at least over I thought maybe, three,
0: maybe yeah. three years, yeah.
2: I think. Oh, year. Like a, a long, long. long time. A lot of information. A lot of information, and now we're just trying to tell you guys about this information. And I hope it's. I hope it's. I hope we're making sense. <laughs> um, but so he calls in all these judges, and the judges are like. Basically, he's trying to find out, like, when you're creating a jury, are you doing it to represent the population that's here? Yeah. And the answer is no. Of course not. And, like, because of this trial, they slowly start to make progress on that. Yeah. That they start to have to have more balanced juries in terms of who you're putting on a jury. Yeah. And in the end, like, out of, I don't know how many people he was representing in that one. I can't remember either. Um, It didn't have, like, a nifty number attached to it the same way the other ones did. No. Um, but he ended up, they all were let go except for one guy who got 40 days in jail for having a gun. Which felt to him still unfair and unjust. And I just like how he, like, he's like, they all know we did crimes, but they did crimes too. Yeah. And, like, Just the way he was able to argue, like, to, like, charm the jury and all this stuff is, like, really incredible. And again, it's like, is it just because it's written by him or was he really that amazing? Right. Well, that's something that uh, we...
3: Yeah, I mean, we'll
2: never know. We'll never never know. I mean, I probably both, right? Right. He probably was very charming and also probably, I think, like, when you're writing, especially about yourself, you're always kind of,
0: I mean, I don't know, that's what I do. I mean. I'm
2: I'm always a little bit more charming and fun in my writing than I think I am. There's, like, one part in it where... You know this book is so different than other books we've read because it literally doesn't talk about Hollywood like at all. Like it's such an East LA book. Like yeah. it's like detached from the glamour. Like the biggest cameo I think for me was that Liberace. Manson girl. No, the- oh my man, gosh, Manson girl. girl. Yeah, there's the Manson Girl Mara show Bruner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those Manson Girls show up at that She's that like last the trial when they're subpoenaing the judges. judges. It's funny. Oh my uh, it's so good. And, no, but they go to that, like, big Chicano, like, fundraiser, fundraiser, thing. fundraiser yeah. thing, and it's, like, all these actors coming out as, like, hey, you know what? We're actually Mexican. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you didn't know, but, like, but we're we Mexican. Are, but there's, yeah. like, a point where one of them is, like, reading a part of one of his speeches, and he's, like, just, like, kind of, like, daydreaming about how great he is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, he's, like, yeah. he's like, oh, by fine words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I oh think it's a great speech. Um... You know what speech I really love in in this book is one at the beginning of you know what? never mind cut this I should have made a note of which one I love. <laughs> well, I mean, you know? we can just wait for you to find it. I will not find it. I, no, I can't really remember what. Anyway, whatever. There's um, so much. About- but there are a lot of really good speeches in this in this book. Um, I really loved when he went to visit his brother. Oh yeah, let's talk about when yeah. he went to visit his brother in this- one. Right? Who's in one? Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, yeah, I thought it was like one of the, I thought this was kind of like the, the, like. I don't want to say like stabilizing, but like, this is where I felt him, the character, to be like most at kind of, uh, most with somebody who's going to like level him a little bit. And yeah, it's a foil. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah like, okay, well. Like, what are you actually doing? So there's this is one part, um, and he's talking about how he almost, kind of almost won for sheriff, um, which he did not end up winning. Um, so this is him speaking to his brother, but look at what we did in the campaign with almost nothing. We got all those votes, but what good is that? They gave you those votes, man. They knew you were going to, weren't going to win. They were just letting you guys get your rocks off. Well, what the fuck are you doing? It's easy for you to sit here sucking up dope and fucking those broads. What? And you're not doing the same thing in East LA? Well, yeah, but I'm also working. Bullshit. It amounts to nothing. It's just an exercise in ego tripping. I stare into the night. We're rounding curves and the car lights race across the jungle, striking the green trees and the red bush. I have just been wounded. Jesus is my twin. Jesus is my twin. No. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Cut that <in> got <laughs> Jesus on the brain. Uh, Jesus is my twin, but he came out first. Our parents always called him the older brother. I have had to treat him with the respect that a Chicano gives to the eldest son. I thought that was wonderful. Yeah, I thought that's such like a great moment. Um, like, he really checked him. You know, yeah, he like that's literally. it. Yeah, like he's just like he's like man what are you really doing up there yeah and I thought that was uh I I don't know why that just really struck me that like a lot of the time when we see this character in LA he's really I mean like he is really admired by a lot of um the people that he's surrounded with you know Mm -hmm. he's like kind of like the big guy and he's very charming and like people really believe him and like him and this is kind of the one moment where we have somebody who's kind of calling him on like, what are you actually doing? Like, what's mm-hmm. going on with them? What are you doing? Um, And I thought that was a really nice moment. And yeah. the writing was really good too, I thought. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, it's a great it's a great part because it's like he he, isn't oh. the character okay, sorry, I have to take a moment. I'm going to take a moment. No, take a look. Um, sorry, Mick. But we're having we're struggling today, Mick. I know this is really long. Sorry, Mick. Um, but here's here's here's. The, I mean, like, I think within this book we see, like, with women, right? Like, every woman he sees, he's like, oh, like he like like, look at her tits. Yeah, he's, he's terrible towards women. Okay, cut that part with the oh tits. <laughs> um, okay, let me just start from scratch. Okay we're, on. From, okay, we're starting from before when Emily said, I need to take a moment. Yeah, we're starting from that time there. I think what's really interesting about, like, this moment with his brother is that it's not within the scene that he's in. And I think even from there, because it's like immediately after that, that his friend, the reporter, dies, mm-hmm. that you start to see him. While he thinks he's, like, a central part of this movement, he's, like, he is, like, just a pawn. And so he can, like, play his part in it, but it starts to to fall apart a little bit. Like, not perfectly, but, like, after this next big movement, he has to go. Like, he's... He can only do it for so long. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think they're, like... We've been talking a lot about, like, you know, what a great lawyer he is and how amazing he is, but, like, he's clearly flawed. Um, yeah. yeah. Like obviously it's a terrible it's not a great time for women still like it's the sexual revolution but like his relationship with women throughout this book is like hugely problematic like he literally dates teenagers yeah yeah yeah, he literally dates three teenage cousins yeah and then he like goes around using a lot of like homophobic and like also other racial slurs which like granted like not granted but like huntress thompson also did so it was you know You could give credit to it being like a style of writing, but like, but it's 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 pretty something that people needed to grow out of. Yes, and now it's just immortalized. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's something that like was really uh, striking to me in the book is kind of seeing the like really intense objectification of women of all ages including teenagers yes. <laughs> young teens 14 as young as 13. 13 there was a prostitute in mexico who was 13. Yes. yeah yeah so um yeah it was very jarring and uncomfortable and also uh, it was a, it, it 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 was difficult to read especially because um you know he sees these women he objectifies them but then they all kind of end up falling in love with him or like really in lust with him and so he gets every woman that he's created this kind of 2d rendering of um and that's that's like a difficult thing to read yeah and i think that and like as upsetting as it is i like the way i was thinking about it i was like damn it's so clear that at so many points in so many movements, women were not considered to be serious a parts value of value of serious parts of that movement. Yeah, um, yeah, and like, it, like this book briefly mentions Angela Davis and mentions so many other women in the like yeah. Chicano movement. Who were doing great things, but he sexualized every single one of them. Yeah, and so it's like whether it's like an aspect of like machismo, if it's like a lot of other things, like just general patriarchy and like the, just di, or like discrediting women. Like, yeah, it pops up all over this book, and so it's like it's a. Fr- I think it's I, frustrating. I find it incredibly frustrating because it takes. You number one, it takes me way out of the book. You know, mm-hmm. like there were a couple of instances where I was like, "I just can't read this right now. I mm-hmm. don't want to read this." And also, like you know, you think about it. Like, well, okay, this guy, the author, you know, has had meaningful relationships with women, but he's just not writing them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's a really frustrating thing um, to deal with as a as a reader and as a female reader. Where you're like, okay, so you're being completely dishonest in this one category of this book, which is your relationship with women. Yeah, I you mean, it, I think it, overall it does still lack, like, there's like not that level of vulnerability that you get. I think there are like a couple yeah. of women he has relationships with, like Elena towards the end, where you can see him soften a little bit more. Totally. Um yeah. But there's never like a full emotional vulnerability from him. No, there's never a full rendering of that character. You know, yeah. it's like. I think, you know, the first kind of, I mean, of the character of Elena. Yeah, oh, no, of course. Like, all the yeah. women are 2D. Yeah, exactly. But I think, yeah, like, I mean, it's always going to be an issue with this book. Like, I don't think yeah. we're going to find a, a way to talk ourselves out of it.
0: No, definitely being not. Yeah. a
2: problem. Like, I also think it's very of the time. Of the which, time, like, I hate yeah. when people say that, but, like, it's just true. I it's just did have to, is. like, move through this book being like, well, yeah, like, that's yeah, just going to be that. And I'm like, and it's not goofy, and it's not kooky, and it's not funny. Like, I think, just kind of looping it back, like, I think we did touch on this and talking January. about Eve, B- Eve oh, Babbitt, yeah. that we yes. were like, here is somebody who can be Bacchaeic without yeah. it being, like, sure, she's, like, mean about some of the men in her life in a fun way, yeah, but it's, like, in a fun way. And, like, she gives them depth. And, like, so I think it is, like, sorry men it's like a limit on men's imagination at this point in time yeah yeah i agree it's like a a blind spot yeah they're like women wear skirts and have tits and um it's really cool when they do badass things but it's still cooler that they have tits yeah yeah, exactly like it's just so broken back to like describe the tit that is doing that badass thing yeah exactly like it's just like she's like and she did it in any skirt she did it's like okay Yeah, it's uh, like she's aiding you in the revolution, but okay. Yeah, that's 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 really the thing. It just seems. I mean, it's yeah. Again, we're not going to talk ourselves out of it, and and I think it's like widely acknowledged that that's that's an issue in a lot of like this era of men. Yeah, exactly. Writing and and like, it's like, why I'm frequently averse to this era of men writing. Yeah. But I think from this coming from. A brown man and being like a deeply political book, which, like, I feel like we don't get political books enough. Yeah. Um, that are about like revolution. About revolution, I, like, yeah. I I, like a novel about revolution. It's yeah. like such a digestible way, besides the like points of view, to yeah. stop with <laughs> the book. It's like <laughs> such a digestible way to like learn about this part of LA. History. It's also such a human way to learn. it like because you can read all you want about like the statistics and blah 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 but like once you're you know he like actually he does put you in there with him on the ground and it's very fun to see I mean fun's probably not the right word but it's very interesting to see the to get a, a rendering of the people who were who were like doing this amazing work and like really had their whole hearts into into bettering their communities, you know? Yeah. Um, So I think it's, like, the the novel as a political um, tool, or not tool, but, Mm -hmm. like, a political rendering is really, I think it's good. I think it's, yeah, I think it's really great, like, that it can, um, like, I always think about literature as being um, the final form of history. Like, there's the historical document, but then there's, like, literature as, like, human's best attempt to capture something yeah and this like flaws and all like really does capture um the the moment yeah so i all oh, like this p pe- this novel is just a really incredible like chunk of la history and again it's like unlike what we've read so far i think it's unlike anything i've like encountered. Yeah. Um, as like a piece of like local history, like to immortalize this is really great. I think there are moments that we miss in like revolutionary history that get lost with all the people. I'm gonna go on a quick thing just because we've already (laughs) been going so long, but like, you know, with all the protests a few years ago, a thing that I was thinking about. It's funny to see like Angela Davis in this, and then. Angela Davis now is, like, somebody who's, like, actually one of the few people to survive. But, like, we don't have, like, black and brown civil rights leaders from that era because they were all assassinated. Yeah. And, like, all killed by the government or whatever. But, like, we don't have those leaders. So I think to, like, consume this writing in any way that we can is, like, really incredible and like yeah he was also killed by the government i'm gonna i'm gonna go with i'm gonna side with his ex-wife and his sister on that and not with his son who thinks it was the drug cartel (laughs) i think it was the government i think it was the government i really do um and i'm really excited to dive more into this conversation with our guests arturo romo and Sashi foster Um, the authors of Elit Dot, which is a really incredible novel about reimagining the history of LA. Um, and they're the ones who got us excited about this book in the first place. Yeah, I'm so excited. Yeah, okay, stay tuned, guys.
1: Welcome back. Uh, we are joined today by Seshu Foster and Arturo Ernesto Romo, who are the authors of the book, Dot, A History of the East Los Angeles Durable Air Transport Lines. Seshu Foster has taught composition and literature in East LA for 20 years and recently retired. Uh, his work has been published in the Oxford Anthology of Modern American Poetry, Language for a New Century, Poetry from the Middle East, Asia, and Beyond and the State of the Union 50 Political Poems. Arturo Ernesto Romo uh, was born in Los Angeles, California in 1980. His artwork, mostly collaborative, mixed media works, but also drawing, has been circulated internationally. His art making is pushed through explorations on the streets of east and northeast Los Angeles, which feed into an ongoing series of collaborations with writer Sessu, Sessu Foster. Welcome, guys.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks
1: for being here. Yeah, we're so excited. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're here today to discuss with you The Revolt of the Cockroach People by Oscar Zeta Acosta, which I actually first learned about this book from you guys when I hosted your launch event for ILA DOT last year. And you cited Oscar Zeta Acosta as one of your big influences for writing. So, what is your relationship to this book and to Oscar Zeta Acosta as a writer?
4: I think I think I I first came to Oscar Zeta Acosta's work through Seshu. I think we had I think we have been uh, creating a a website called uh, elaguide.org that explored hidden histories and people's histories of East Los Angeles and. Um, and he was featured, in, and Oscar Cetacosta was featured in one of the pages that was called, I believe, Our Influences, or Our Patron Saints of, of the Tours. And so, um, but my, well, my experience with the content of his work goes back much further. Um, I, I grew up in a, in a Chicano movement household. Both of my parents were involved in the Chicano movement. And so the narratives and the memories and the history of chicanismo and of that early um uh mid to late 60s uh human rights movement called the chicano movement was part of the way i grew up and was part of the stories of my family so oscar seta costa reading his work um actually paralleled the the book like revolt of the cockroach people actually paralleled the stories that i had heard from my family
0: and i think I first uh, came across uh, Zeta Acosta's books in small press editions from the Bay Area. I don't remember the presses that they came out on. They didn't come out on necessarily Chicano presses, um, but they came out on small Bay Area presses before they got picked up by I think Vintage or somebody Um, later on after, after Hunter S. Thompson, made him a, uh, gave him a race change operation and turned him into a 300 pound Samoan in fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Um, and, um, which apparently pissed Zeta Costa off and he threatened to sue, but um, but then he disappeared forever without a trace out, off supposedly off the coast of Mazatlan in 1974. So, um, so there was no suit, and and uh, and maybe maybe he'll always be remembered as a 300-pound Samoan, mm-hmm. or Benicio del Toro, he'll be remembered <laughs> as that. Um, uh, but I think that's symptomatic of the way um, certain writers of color. Um, certain figures, political figures and others are obscured, marginalized and erased by history turned into s- to things that they're not um, stereotyped or um, or simply erased and and um, used for the purposes of other people. Um, and so Zeta Costa for me was one of those Meteors that kind of flashed across the '60s, early '70s, and disappeared. Um, you know, like, oh, like Huey Newton, who, who um, whose life time overlapped roughly, or or others of that period who who um, embodied a kind of zeitgeist, a spiritual. Um, turmoil of that period, of the history of that period, and then uh, flashed out and disappeared. Um, uh, in in Costa's case, disappearing liter- literally. Um, so yeah, um, uh, he was interesting to me for, for that reason. He illuminates history from underneath from the underground, from, from, uh, from a participant's viewpoint, uh, as opposed to, um, I will say, uh, uh, the recent excellent um, book by Mike Davis uh, about LA in the 60s, which, which I read and I love, but I, I can't think of the title it's set, set the, the night fire. on fire set the night on fire with um john
1: wiener. i don't i don't remember the other guy who wrote it
0: but i did yeah the the uci one. professor history professor yeah. yeah um who does a great show on kpfk and i don't remember his name right now yeah.
4: i think it's john wiener
0: that's right it's john wiener great all right
4: yeah
0: um yeah so um I mean, that's a great overview of LA in the 60s. Uh, Zeta Costa probably gets a mention in there. Um, but if you read Zeta Costa's books, you get the feeling of what it's like to be walking in the streets during that time. Um, and a little bit, you know, and being sort of driven out of your mind by some of it. Yeah,
1: I think. In reading it, I was really struck, and something we were talking about before just um, was struck by like the power of it as a political novel and how rarely, like whether it's a novel or it's real, like, you know, how much of that is true. But like, to get a political novel like this is really rare, like it's not something I've ever, I think I've ever really seen And then to also have it be like this revolutionary story about the Chicano movement, which like I knew so little about, it gave me such like a gate, like it was such a gateway into it. Um, And I just found that so specifically powerful. Um, And yeah, just like really struck by like how that creates like a legacy for this work and for this movement. Um, And I wish more people, I want more people to read this book for like that reason. Um,
0: I think that's, you know, I think that's the power of narratives, power of narratives is really to, to embody a spirit of, of, of a time, um, as opposed to, you know, a list of sequential facts and causation and, um, and data, Um, but instead, um, you know, kind of like uh kind of like a dancer dancing they they showed the body of motion
1: yeah absolutely how did you guys find like in creating Dot like that same kind of energy of like preservation or like creating a narrative that that allows you to you know experience pieces of history because for those of you who maybe haven't been exposed to what is like a really incredible piece of work that you guys collaborated on together it's like all of these pieces of LA history real LA history reimagined into a new history of LA correct
0: we were i'm going to step on arturo's toes we were um, we were driving around you know we were researching the la.org which is still which is still up arturo did the yeoman's work of HTML and inputting that uh, website up there. And it has walking and driving tours of historical sites in East Los Angeles. Um, And so we we drove many days. I don't know how many hundreds of miles, but many days around and around uh, Northeast LA and, and East LA um, looking at various historical sites like self-help graphics or um, the community service organization um, offices uh, of the organization where Cesar Chavez uh, got his community service uh, training um, or community organizing training and, um, and documenting them. And, and I know for a fact that Zeta Costa would come up every now and then because we would wonder, we would wonder, like, you know, um, where did he stay when he was in East LA? Maybe, maybe he's still living in one of these houses that, that we're driving by and so forth. So he was like this mystery man spirit that kind of uh, inhabited our quest or like haunted our quest to look around at these historical sites.
4: Kind of like yeah. A... It's kind of in the same way that I guess like, like the, the role that Seta Costa played in our exploration of East LA is really similar to the way that narratives, stories, and memories of previous movements play, haunt, and re and are reenacted in current movements. So the sometimes we're reiterating movements of the past and those the the past struggles, um, stories of past struggles, and talking to elders about past struggles inform current struggle. Um, but we're also we're also uh, always creating new new versions of what we'd like to see based on current uh, realities. But we're also reenacting or reiterating things that we've seen in the past. So. In, a, in the way that Seta Costa as a person or as an artist in relationship to community informed and haunted our work as artists in relation to community uh, I think the narratives that he left us along with stories I hear from my family or um, stories that activists hear from older activists I think those are also operating on the same register like we are we are alive in history and history is alive in us and it's not just, the history that Seshi was talking about, like it's not just like dates, events, and occurrences and cause and effect. It's also like what were people's spiritual embodied experiences of these events. And um you know our, our traditions of oral history uh get kind of like transmuted into the written word. And when I read that Post I feel like I'm being told a story. There is like this oral history about it complete with Elaborations, exaggerations, left turns, and then like kind of like the living language of Chicanismo at the time. So I think what Seshu says about like the haunting is, is pretty accurate, not just for Costa as a writer or artist, to, to us writers and artists, but also like movements continue on even after they've changed into other types of movements.
3: No, I'm just thinking now about um, kind of the, like what you said about kind of the spirituality of these movements. And I I was thinking as I was reading it, that something that I think Acosta captures really well in this book is kind of like the spiritual aspect of of these movements. Um, And it's something that I'm interested in as well. Um, Would you, I mean, like, can we like air that out a little bit more? Because I think it's really interesting. How do you think he went about capturing that kind of that kind of spirit in the book? Because you can feel it. Like it's an emotional book. Um, how do you think, as a writer? Because I'm trying to be a writer, and so like, you know, I, just as a writer, how do you think he went about doing that? And and how do, how do you you all go about kind of capturing that 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 potent emotion in your work? Is that a terribly large question that we
1: are always struggling with as artists?
4: Oh, Seshio has told me the answer to that one before, so I'll
0: let him take it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, you're up, Sesshu.
0: I guess so. Um, well, one of the things that that um, that my former neighbor, co-founder of the brownberries Carlos Montes, told me about his lawyer, Zeta Acosta, was that Um, was that he, he was big and he was he was kind of fearless he was fearless in the sense that he wasn't afraid to get kicked out of court he would yell in court he would pound on the table he would um he would act out because I think he wanted to go the distance you know he wanted to make sure that (laughs) <laughs> that for better or worse, he was, you know, he was he wasn't just in the background, that he was, he was um uh fully participating, that he was there. Um and I, you know, I think that definitely that that sort of largesse, you know, that sort of overly large um and kind of like, you know. Um, macho and mansplaining kind of um, lar- largeness of, of spirit, of vigorous uh, spirit you know explains why he kind of burned out and just shot through the through the scenes of the, the Chicano movement and and exploded somewhere over the Sea of Cortez um, but but um, you know, I get. I guess I'm trying to suggest that one way to um, to you know get to the the forefront or to participate fully is to make sure to do what what you can to go go the distance and and try to sort of go the final final yard, the final inch. And and um, and be present. When we were we we did a bunch of nonfiction work uh, researching the ELA guide, and at the same time, um, you know, we were always um, joking and uh, making things up uh, in the conversation as we drove around. Arturo and I, and, um, and so Eladat, the East LA um, Dirigible Air Transport Lines novel is a kind of compendium of the characters we made up from Juan Fish, whose, whose actual truck is visible in, in and around Lincoln Heights um and other people like that um including Zero costa who we we um successfully interviewed as a ghost uh,
2: I was just looking over that today it was like so yeah. great to see
1: that after having read this book and like I feel like you guys really now, hearing that you guys were driving around pretending he was kind of in the car i was we had been like, how did they capture him so well on the page? But, yeah, I was like, this because he like was like in the car with you.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize it was the ghost that you were interviewing. So, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that all, like that level of like just capturing the spirit of LA and of the movement is is really incredible. And I I don't, I I can't quite put my finger on why I feel so very moved by that. But I think it's just that like, we do so much writing these days, like doesn't exist within collectivism. Um, It's so much about the individual. And so to see something that like is both history and personal
1: and political, like I don't think you can do that outside of a like political novel because you know, the personal is political. So I think it starts to like hammer home that idea. Um, But so I'm, I'm curious, I think like what you guys like think of where this legacy of like Acosta has, I mean like he was your neighbor's lawyer, like how has he like rippled through the East LA community and like seen now.
4: Yeah, I'm, I, I'm still thinking about that idea of like showing up and like, and like that, like Seshu says, kind of like trying to fill in space to be as big as possible. And I think of um, a video, there's like a, a film uh, footage of a, um, guys, you're gonna have to help me Sessu, um Raul Reese. Who was uh, a uh, what was he editor of La Raza or a contributor? Right.
0: Yeah. Maybe he was publisher also. A publisher. of at- La Raza newspaper.
4: Yeah. City Terrace. And so, um, during the during one of the Chicano Moratoria against the war in Vietnam, um, a journalist named Ruben Salazar was murdered by the sheriff's department and. Raul Gris, I believe was a person, was a, one of the people who took, the, took photographs of the moment that he was murdered. And so there's a video that's available on on YouTube, I think. And it's, I believe it's uh, some type of inquiry or, or preliminary hearing or something about the investigation into the murder. And Raul is, is, uh is on the stand showing the photographs that he took. And one of the things that I've heard people talk about contemporaries of his is like how empowering it was that he was just talking back like he was just talking back and you look at the video and he's just on fire he's gonna he's not taking like any shit he's just answering the questions he's questioning the premise of the questions he's calling out bias and it's just something really powerful and I think there was something about the Chicano movement that Zeta Acosta kind of fills in in his own way, like his own like very idiosyncratic and personal way of the spirit of the time about like not withdrawing anymore, like to advance, to push and to become, like to become more full uh, into public spaces and, and cultural spaces and um, to, to not be afraid anymore. Um, and so I think that's one of the spirits in the book. I mean, I think I think it manifests in Settacoss as a type of like recklessness and like willful recklessness and like striving, striving to become a writer. Like he mentions early in the book, like he just can't wait to find the story, and then once he does, it's like, you know, all bets are off. He's just going to pursue it to the end. Um, but this like his his uh, his desire to become a writer, his desire to become to transform into something uh, a more fuller version of himself, however problematic uh, is like one of the spirits of the book, but it's also one of the spirits of I guess any movement any movement of people who have felt submerged. Uh, to me it's a novel that's partly about emergence. Um, and so, and so I think yeah I think that's what I feel is in the spirit of the book and in terms of, of how he's I guess how he he's his legacy today, I, I think. Not too many people know about him, and that's one of the features of being uh, features of being on stolen land. Um, that's continuously stolen and continuously, like you know, deracinated or or like erased or something. Is that we're we're continuously building and continuously being like uh, stripped of our own history. And so people like Seta Acosta and the Chicano Moratorium and uh, the Chicano Movement as a whole are both embedded in the way that we think about our lives, like it's transformed the way I live, um, and and it's saved my life in a lot of ways. Uh, But then they're also like hidden. They're like these weird ghost ghost stories or something like that, like uh, hidden people, hidden stories. And so he exists on these multiple levels, (laughs) definitely exists on these multiple levels, like present but not
0: present. Maybe I can insert a quote from Carlos Montes here. Yeah. Uh, This is Carlos Montes. Um, I interviewed him in December of 2013. And on behalf of the French edition of Revolt of the Cockroach People, and um, he told me, uh, these white cops arrested me, they said, for assault and battery of a police officer. And I said what assault and battery of a police officer. They charged me with throwing a soda can, maybe an empty soda can at the police at a rally because some cans and bottles had been thrown apparently. If that was true, why didn't they arrest me at the rally? But they arrested me. Uh, Not only did they arrest me, they took the picket signs I had in my car and wrote insults on them like dirty Mexicans or whatever, smashed the Chevrolet insignias on the vehicle, on the steering wheel. I pled not guilty and at the preliminary hearing Zeta Acosta came in carrying the picket sign incensed you know, complaining to the judge throwing the signs on the table in the courtroom saying that the arresting officers wrote these racial insults on the signs and tore up my car. The judge kept trying to tell Oscar this is not the appropriate time or place for such a complaint. The judge would say things like, if you want to file a complaint against the police, you have to file it with the police, etc." But Zeta Costa kept bringing it up. And when I saw Zeta Costa throw the signs on the table, I was just thinking, go for it, bro. What other attorney does that? Of course, he yelled at me too. Zeta Costa's strategy was always to fight it all, to go to trial and fight it all the way. We got into a big confrontation and he told me, I don't remember his exact words, but something like, you got to leave because there was no evidence against the other five defendants in the Biltmore arson case, uh, which as an aside was um, six people were charged on the testimony of an undercover LAPD officer that they tried to burn down the Biltmore hotel while Ronald Reagan was speaking in it. Um, So that's the aside, Carlos says, yeah, I was in a meeting with all the defendants, he yelled at me too, that we were all going to burn because of me, the only evidence was against me, he said, so he said, it was my word against a police officer, Fernando Sumayas, and who was the jury going to believe. So I had to leave and I did. I got married in January 1970 and the next weekend I was gone, out of the country, underground, living underground in Mexican Mexico and El Paso. And I didn't come back to L.A. for seven years, um, a sort of a path that that Zeta Costa himself took uh, in the early 70s.
1: Even in just listening to that, it's it's like I'm struck by like several things, but one being like how he like mutated that undercover cop into this book while not talking about that specific case, but he does use that undercover cops, so it's like this, this like mutated retelling of history, which is fine. You know, like that's like we're it would have been impossible, I think, to include everything he was a part of mm-hmm. and just- Yeah, so
0: for like, example, he changes Ruben Salazar into Roland Zanzibar.
4: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Which is hilarious.
2: <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, but I think it's like also just like to see him, yeah like really be such a touchstone for people and to like occupy this this space to be able to to like help
1: people move through that I think it's really fascinating I don't know the point I was trying to make anymore but
2: <laughs> well it is kind of like he's like like uh, epic like uh, almost like a, a mythic proportions right where um, I mean even from that segment it's like you can tell he he like embodied his whole life
3: you know like really if he was for you
2: he was for you and i think that's really i don't know i think that's really powerful and inspiring myself um yeah i don't I also yeah he was he quiet. was like
1: larger than life and i think that's like absolutely yeah
3: i think but then this book is really interesting because, like, as a figure, he is larger than life. And then in this book where it's like a fictionalized version of, you know,
2: his life, you can see how very, like, flawed he is.
3: Um, and that's, again, like, the most par- powerful part of literature to me is mm-hmm. to see the kind of duality and the struggle, which
2: is, like, inherently so spiritual. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. but Yeah. Yeah. um,
0: I'm. You know, I I was um, thinking about your question of how he uh, how Zeta Costa sort of overlaps or continues on uh, into into the present day into L.A. as it as it is now, and I was thinking about the the former members of ASCO, the performance group. Harry Gamboa, uh, Arturo, who, who are the, the others? Gronk, yeah, Patsy Valdez. Patsy Valdez.
4: Yeah, Willie Aron.
0: Willie Aron. Yeah. Um, and how they also um, were um, as artists uh, in, in East LA, denied access to LACMA, so they famously tagged LACMA and photographed themselves in front of their tag as, as a piece of artwork um, and uh, you know, went, their, went their own way. Independently, did a lot of street theater. Um, many of their pieces are, are photographic documents of performance pieces that they, they did in the streets. On Whittier Boulevard, or um, uh, or or elsewhere uh, downtown LA, um, and you know, for me, they they definitely went on to embody that rebellious um, spirit uh, that that Zero Costa rec- recorded. Uh, the members of Osco recorded and and the, the striking thing for me is since you mentioned how does how does it how does Zeta Costa's legacy or influence continue on. Those artists all continue on. They have continuing influence um, to this day. Uh, you know, Harry Gamboa has collected writings uh, under the title of urban exile was published by the University of Minnesota I think it was um, they, they all have um, they're all still alive and <laughs> that's a major thing uh, <laughs> it's really it's really hard to produce if you don't live <laughs> um, yeah. and they so they produce they show they exhibit um, and they're they're still active.
1: Yeah, I think the the question I'm kind of left with is like, you know, Elena and I both aren't from here. We both like moved here with an, I've been here for three years, Elena's been here for a year, and something that's movie. come up time and time again is like, mm-hmm. as we do this podcast, is like that we're both like looking to learn more about LA history um and understanding LA history and um because it's so hidden and like looking at it as like if as the land is stolen again and again as people keep coming here and acting like it's not that it's a space of like this one industry um I think a lot of people are left thinking that it doesn't have this like rich deep history like as illustrated through this one movement. And we've been seeing it like through everything we've read yeah, um, so far, which is like really varies the most special thing about this process so far for us um, is just like getting to dive deeper into that. Um, and I guess the question I was leading into, Um, was just like, how, what is like, what is the, give me a moment while I find it. Um, like as these, like, it's just like the complexity of LA is like, so, so deep. And I, I find myself like constantly like face to face with it, but it's also so easy to ignore the complexity of this place. And I think learning about the Chicano movement has like showed me, like as with many other things in the city, like that there's always protest and like people pushing it forward and it's the people who are like actually from here. Um, And the point that I'm getting to, there's a point I think um, (laughs) is like, I'm just curious, like with this book, I feel so moved by that concept and like once again, hit with that. And my question to you guys is just kind of like, what has like the Chicano movement provided for like your understanding of LA? Obviously Arturo, like it's a big part of your life. But I think just like this, like continued, like if like if this was my city, like I'm from Minneapolis. So like I've gone through a lot in understanding my this, my city's relationship to the cops many years over. And so I'm just like, how do you as like a community member of LA from LA continue to understand like the erasure of this history. And then like, obviously through your art practice, this is like a huge part of your art practice, right, is like preserving that. So I guess that's my question is all of those things. <laughs> yeah,
4: <laughs> there's like a like like one of the, the ways that me and Seshu, you know, I'm primarily a visual artist, although I do like use words in my work. Um, and Seshu does visual art also. There should be a book out of your visual art, your drawings, but he says no. Um, We say yes. He's primarily uses words, he's a writer. Um, But I think like what, where we've come together is is like, we're pretty committed to writing from, writing in relation to place. Um, And I think that we're, we we both share this maybe like a framework or a concept <laughs> of, um, <laughs> we both share this framework, or concept of, of, um, place being like multivalent or something like, uh, like territory is like history, historical territory. And it's, uh, it's like internal territories also. So it's like dreamscapes and, um, and personal histories. And I think we're both committed to that. We're both committed to being artists of place, and um, like who write, who write and create from places, uh, defining places as, as you know, history, space, time, internal, internal, um, internal life. Um, and I think like when you make that commitment as an artist, or when you start making work from place, that's like when you when you have to relate to place, you have to relate to other people and community. Um, and I, I think that's that's how I've learned to be an artist, like both working with Seshu, but also like learning from you know my parents and and their storytelling skills and their artistic abilities. Um, that one way that you belong to place is by contributing to place and artists do that by authentically creating from it and honoring it, um, kind of like, uh, you belong to a place because you treat it with respect and you treat the people that were there before you with respect and, uh, listen to them. Um, And so i think like that type of artistic practice i hope i hope that artistic practice is not so highly individualistic and self-serving um and 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 that i'm not an artist so that i can like become well known or i'm not an artist so that i can make something that's never been made before i think that's something i was taught in art school like all those like ethics of being like a genius artist or something uh these western frameworks are like these western market-based frameworks of creating unique individual works. I, I think that stepping away from that or decolonizing that for myself has been important in my, to to be an artist that actually contributes to the place that they live in uh, and then finds greater belonging in that place because of it.
0: There's a curious sort of um, perpendicularity of my relationship to Arturo's work because I feel like narrative is in some ways perpendicular to visual arts in that you can kind of see a picture instantaneously, but a narrative obviously you have to read from point A to point B or, or to the end or something. Um, a narrative therefore unfolds over time and um, a certain amount of, of graphic information is just readily available to you in a picture, in a visual format, um, right away. Um, and so, so there's a curious sort of tension or conflict between, uh, that I like, between my form forms that I work in and Arturo's. Um, and what was I going with that? I'm not sure, except that, um, that, Part of what we deal in are counter narratives. And I think one like we're we're trying to counter the narrative of Los Angeles being a city of amnesia, a city of forgetting, a city that that is always new because it erases the past. And and where people can come to reinvent themselves and become overnight successes or whatever, but instead yeah, we were we are dealing in memory and um, and history, memory and history, and because your life is, you know, hopefully not just an instant, but takes place. You know, like takes place is a is an idiom that that has the word place in it.
1: I mean, I I find that like very powerful, and I, I really. I very much support that work. I would like that to be in my own work as well, that it's like based in these things. Um, And I think like just kind of looping it back to the Acosta of it all, it is incredible to see um, his work embody that so much as well, that while he was like a traveling A traveling man he was like rooted in this this movement and this cause and um was able to like create something that lasted beyond him and his mysterious disappearance um which yeah like thank god these books got made because we have so i think unless you're in like direct like unless you live within the community, it's like, you're not gonna get to find out, you know? So it's like really amazing to have like a living or not living, but like a thing that lives on. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I guess like one thing I think about too with, with his work and the purpose or like the life it has currently is that it's one narrative out of, out of many. And I think it would be wrong if we saw revolt of the cockroach people is like the definitive Chicano movement novel and I think I'm not sure why but because I guess because it's not as prominent as it could be it hasn't achieved that status I think it's at least from my position it's like one story of like many different stories I've heard about the movement and I think that that is actually really important because by the by the framing by seta costa's own framing it's like highly personal it's like this very personal account and i think it is there it should be problematized you know like there are like some very mm, misogynistic limited things about this about the book um, that i don't think means that we just, dis- that we dismiss it and where, or we don't read it, or something, but it does mean like there are other stories out there about the movement, um, and they take all these different forms, right? There's like there's like uh, narratives about it, interviews about it, um, there's artwork about it, like Seshu mentioned, Asko and Asko's work, like especially in in that period right after the moratorium, was, you know, was to a large extent about the experience, about the experience of. Um, of the Chicano Moratorium and the Chicano uh Chicano movement, you know. Um and so those stories are like constantly unfolding. There's like photo archives, La Raza newspaper archives, like all those things are like part of the narrative um that that is um that documents this period in LA history. And so I think I'm I'm comfortable with and happy Seta Costa's work is there as like one of many Narratives. I guess um, I would. I don't think I would want to see it as like a definitive um, account of of our history, but I think it is an important piece of it. It's, it's like history speaks in all these different registers, and and his is yeah. one.
0: Yeah, I recall what Elena was saying about Zeta Costa bears his own flaws in in his prose, that he, he his candor uh, includes describing his own foolishness and, and, um, and limitations as a, as a human being, um, in a kind of way that's, that's sort of like a trickster. Mm. Um, and I think that's really important that, uh, you know, tricksters can say things that, um, that due to candor and honesty you know, the, oh, for example, the comedy of Richard Pryor um, can make points that, you know, serious historians, they just don't never get around to, like it it doesn't, because it doesn't fit their register, you know, their register, they're going for for something else, for a different audience, for, for a different purpose. And so Zeta Costa is engaging partly because of that that register of being, you know, like a trickster with candor and comedy and foolishness uh, as a a definite part of what he's doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think like it's, he exposes himself so like readily as I mean, like that it opens the door to like, especially us now knowing like you, you know, reading about the women in that, I would just be like, well, I think they probably did far more than he, you know, gives them credit for in the, (laughs) in his narrative. Um, and that they probably weren't all falling all over him all the time. (laughs) And it makes me just like so much more curious to learn so much more, but yeah, really thank you guys so much. This has been really amazing. So insightful. Yeah